0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes. Today I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Hoyer. He's cur- he currently holds a postdoctoral position working with Dr. Peter Turkin on the deep roots of the modern world, part of the SheShat Global History Data Bank project, a large scale interdisciplinary and comparative project hosted by the Evolution Institute and the, uh, the University of Oxford. And today we're going to focus on his book, together with Dr. Peter Turkin, Figuring Out the Past, the 3,495 Vital Statistics that Explain World History. So, Dr. Hoyer, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, great. So,
0: I mean... Uh, so, uh, it's interesting the kind of data you present in the book. Uh, is it one of its goals to try to uh, perhaps go behind some of the limitations of how history is traditionally done?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, um, I think that's an interesting point. I wouldn't describe it as limitations so much. I would say that, um, you know, traditionally history has focused on deep qualitative dives into a very small set of historical cases or historical societies and what we are trying to do with Sashat generally and I think what the book is really trying to to get at is you know there's a lot of interesting things that you can learn only when you sort of take that step back and take the macro level view and start to do some comparative history and say okay how similar actually were these societies what are some common patterns that we can develop and what we're trying to do in the book sort of these vital statistics are some of these actual patterns um you know so so i try not to say that it's so much a limitation with historical work more that you know being disciplinarily, I think the, the willingness to engage with bigger questions, to engage with larger data sets, that's really what we're trying to do um, with the Seshat project with Clear dynamics and, and sort of our, our overall work.
0: Mm-hmm. But do you think that even in terms of understanding particular historical events, mm-hmm. that with this kind of data, we could do a better job than, for example, narrative history? Narrative mm-hmm. in the sense that people try to provide the narrative of the events and try to explain how several different figures participated Mm -hmm. in them and this and that. So uh, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. It is something we we think about a lot. We talk about a lot. We're obviously engaged with a lot of sort of more traditional historical um, historians and, and anthropologists. I would say not so much better. I don't think we do a better job. We do a different job. And to me, it's not so much, you know, choosing one or the other, that sort of deep narrative qualitative dive that you're talking about, or the kind of um, macro level quantitative stuff that I you know, mostly focus on. It's really you know, combining these two methods because both can inform each other. And really you know, the, the sort of suite of methods that you bring to bear totally depends on the kind of question you wanna ask. If you wanna ask about a very you know, narrow, specific um, single society, then narrative qualitative history is very appropriate. But if you want to ask questions about, you know, general patterns in human history, if you especially want to look at um, causal forces and bringing out sort of what is the main drivers of these historical events, rather than just sort of understanding the, the details of the event itself. Then I do think you need to bring at least a little bit of the sort of quantitative method. And so it's, it's really a matter of, you know, what is your question? What exactly are you trying to get out of? And then you can combine methods in, in interesting ways.
0: Mm-hmm. but in trying to understand these main drivers of history let's say of or of particular events or, or periods of time I mean there are several different approaches out there in history there are people that focus on particular figures there are other people that talk about the ideas and the particular yeah, yeah. Cur- to, cur- uh, cultural phenomenon that were part of that particular society in that <laughs> particular period of time then there are people that focus more on, let's say, for example, the material, the ecological conditions, and so on. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, do you go along with any of these views or not?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is this is really, the, I think, the, the crucial question. And to me, you know, again, it's not so much, you know, which one's right or which one has the most um, utility in answering these questions. It kind of depends on the question itself. And what I always sort of comes back to for me is a question of scale. And so at a very micro level scale, yes, these kinds of, um, you know, big man or sort of great thinker type histories. I mean, it's not my favorite way of of doing history, but there is something there. I mean, there are individuals who have um, prominent effects. You know, think about some of my work on the Axial Age. I recently published a book on the Axial Age. That's one of the sort of great traditions in that um, line of scholarship is focusing on these individual scholars like, Confucius or Zarathustra and some, you know, the big men type uh, of analysis. And yes, they certainly had an important role to play. They were very, you know, some of these ideas, if they were in fact true historical figures, um, you know, they did they did have a prominent role. They did uh, have an effect. But you can't explain the entire global set of patterns by focusing just on them or just on their works, they can't explain why you see you know, similar developments, similar axial type developments in Egypt, you know, a thousand years before Confucius was even born. So for that to actually explain the full range, then you need what you're talking about, you need to get into some of the material evidence and you need to start to get comparative. And once you start to get comparative, once you have a large enough data set, it's really impossible for a single human to sort of narratively try to understand the patterns. That's where you really need quantitative methods. It's really only, the only approach that can allow you to sort of um, pick out the signal from the noise, if you see what I mean
0: yeah but even i mean even these figures and particularly the more intellectual ones mm-hmm. isn't it the case that in order to understand where their ideas come from or where their ideological the ideological system that they developed came from don't we also have to understand these sort of patterns you're talking mm-hmm. about
1: yeah absolutely i mean that's very much my perspective and i i agree with that it, you know Again, it doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile to just understand the these great thinkers themselves or some of these philosophical or religious movements. They're very important. Like these narrative um, qualitative histories are very, very useful in pumping our intuitions and just like understanding and, and building that um, set of empirical data. But I very much agree with you. I think that you know once you start getting into the issue of causality, once you start getting into the issue of oh yeah, well you know these figures arose, great. But why? Why is it that they arose precisely where and when they did? What were the incentive structures? What was the kind of social systems that were driving their ideas, not only to be formed, but then to be adopted, which is the other part. It's one thing to have, you know, this great thinker who has a great idea, but it really only shows up in the historical record if it has a societal impact. And there, I totally agree with you. Then we're talking about the sort of larger scale um, societal dynamics that, that requires that bigger view.
0: And also because, I mean, to understand where their ideas come from, sometimes we also have to look at how their society is operated, right? Because, I mean, sometimes it's not the case that they are coming up with something particularly original, but they are observing what's happening in their societies in a particular period of time, correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think this is is really what comes out, you know, again, in in our work with... um, the Axial Age and our work with looking at different sort of religious uh, dynamics and, and the dynamics of cultural systems, one of the things we find a bit surprisingly, I think, to many people is that, you know, there really are a lot of common patterns and it's not just that, you know, there's some great individual like Confucius or like Plato, who has this, you know, great idea about moral philosophy, you see similar kinds of ideas about moral philosophy showing up all over the place in different parts of the world at different times. And that's this sort of commonality that seems to be this, you know, um, repeated pattern in human history. So then you start to ask, well, why? What is actually prompting these things to happen? You know, um, uh, Old Kingdom Egypt has nothing to do with spring autumn period China, like they weren't involved, they were thousands of years apart, yet you see a lot of very similar developments. So how do you actually explain that? And this is where we get into, you know, there's a lot of underlying um, dynamics that are going on. There's, there's the sort of um, external pressures. There's the sort of competitive um, field that these states are involved in. They are scaling up. They're developing populations. They're developing new types of institutions to sort of manage these larger populations. And along with that, what we see, and this is sort of what, what's come out of our work, is that you also need cultural systems that can sort of keep the whole thing running, the sort of social glue as we like to call it. And this is why we think you see um, certain kinds of moralizing religion sprout up only after you see sort of um, scaling up of different societies, why you see these kinds of philosophies about universality, about egalitarianism, these kind of axial modern type ideas. Well, they do arise in very particular places for very particular reasons. Like that seems to be you know, a a useful component in maintaining cohesion at scale um, is, is what the pattern seems to be showing.
0: Mm -hmm. And that includes the way that societies are organized, right? Because, for example, uh, until the 15th, 16th century, when conquistadors arrived in the Americas, I mean, we can see across the globe different societies popping up in different places that, I mean, they follow certain kinds of trends that are similar across them. And Mm -hmm. even societies that were more or less isolated from one another correct
1: yeah absolutely and you know entirely isolated from one another this is you know the surprising thing um you know again to me it's a matter of of scale and sort of the level of your analysis and it's not as though you know oh these societies are entirely similar or these societies are entirely unique both are true and that's what's really interesting and and sort of need to keep that uh, in mind you know earlier work um, we sort of showed again a little bit surprising to us was that you know when you when you look about how are we going to characterize what what we call social complexity like how how it is that societies are structured how do they grow what happens when they fall it turns out that there's really just a single sort of dimension a single package of features um, that are common throughout history throughout the globe as you say in east asia in northern europe in africa in south america anywhere at any period of time there seems to be this sort of single common set of factors that characterize um, what it means to be a growing complex society. But at the same time, you know, yes, there's this kind of uniformity or similarity. But if you zoom in at any particular society, the way that these structures manifest is very different. And so, you know, the kinds of, um, you know, the kinds of religious systems that you find among the, you um, you know, among the Aztecs or among, um, you know, the Incas in South America are very different in their particulars and the kinds of deities and the kinds of literature that they have than you find in, say, um, Cambodia. But they're doing very similar things. And so to me, it's, it's you know, it's, it's not sort of either or, it's, it's usually and, if, if you see what I mean. Right. But do you
0: think we can talk about human universals in terms of the mm. way of the features of each particular society and the ways they organize themselves and perhaps some of the institutions they develop? Because it seems that at least some of them are pretty similar.
1: Yeah, this is. Yeah, I know what you mean. This is It's a very good question. It's. It's tough to answer. Universals, I mean, it has such a a terrible history, we don't like to talk about universal laws as though they're set in stone. Um, But at the same time, I think you're right, like, we can't shy away from the fact that empirically, when you do these sort of analyses, when you take this broad view, yeah, you're finding very similar patterns. Um, You know, to me, the way that I I sort of approach it is the universals, like what, what sort of unites us and what is the same all over the globe throughout history have really been the kinds of challenges that human societies face. The challenge of, you know, maintaining cohesion, the challenge of solving collective action problems at scale, the challenge of, you know, keeping um, your society kind of intact and functioning while maybe trying to um, institutionalize inequalities uh, or while trying to um, defend yourself against Um, you know, scary neighbors. These are the kinds of challenges that really all societies are facing. And, you know, there's not a single way to answer those problems, but there's also not an infinite uh, number of choices. And so this is what we seem to find is that, you know, the the way that you, for example, um, maintain or, or the way that you solve collective action problems at increasing scale, there's only a very small set of sort of solutions that humans seem capable of producing to do that. It's not always the same, but it's pretty similar. And this is where we get at these kinds of institutional, um, institutionalized kind of hierarchies to keep everything sort of in order. This is why we see similar sorts of religious and, and ritual systems developing all over the world. Seems explained by the fact that, well, all these different societies are you know, finding similar ways to solve the same kinds of challenges.
0: Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I mean, the, that happens, we see those patterns when societies try to scale up, but do we also see patterns across small scale societies? I mean, I'm not sure how far back this, uh, goes. does yeah. you Sheshet know, go in terms of the kinds of societies it's interested in, but do you have anything to say about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic point, and that's, I'm glad you raised this. Um, uh, it helps to clarify this. So, Seshach goes back really as far as we can, um, you know, and, and, and depends on the uh, evidence that's available, depends on, you know, the archaeological and anthropological work that's been done in different parts of the world. We go back as far as the Neolithic. Um, you know, we actually are, are working right now to expand our set of cases um, of, you know, like Pleistocene, Neolithic. Um, you know, early hunter-gatherer type um, semi-nomadic peoples. We're trying to get sort of even farther back uh, in a more robust set of that. And this is exactly, you know, it's still a little bit of an open question, but um, this is work where we're engaged in. And it seems to be as you're suggesting that, you know, it's not just that, okay, after a certain, you know, threshold, when a society gets a, a particular amount of territory or a particular amount of population, then all these things kick in the same trends are happening from the very beginning, right? From, from you know, small tribal bands of a few dozen, maybe a, a hundred or so people, it's still the same challenges. The solutions may be a little bit different, right? So for example, we do a lot of work um, with my colleague Harvey Whitehouse about, you know, you find very different kinds of rituals, very different kinds of cultural systems are required to keep cohesion among, you know, a small group of people like 150 or so then are required to keep cohesion amongst, you know, a, a society that has millions of people. So the specific rituals are very different. Um, it's, you know, the difference between, um, you know, a kind of scarification ritual or, um, you know, taking all all the men in a village will go out on a on hunt a dangerous animal together and that's, you know, life threatening and it's scary versus in sort of large, you know, modern developed um, societies, we, the kinds of rituals we see aren't, aren't so scary, they're not so emotionally tense, they're more kind of rote, right? It's going to church every Sunday, it's sort of doing something, you know, praying every day, whatever. But the point, the sort of main point is that the effect of these, that the, the real driving force behind why these, these uh, cultural systems seem to develop and why they seem to be so prominent is the same. It's trying to maintain cohesion, it's trying to sort of keep whatever size of group you have, trying to keep it intact. And that happens, you know, throughout time, as far back as, you know, 10,000 years ago, even further, we think. Um, And it happens no matter what size of group you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Can we also get new insights through your
0: database about cultural evolution? I mean, how culture Mm -hmm. evolves over time in different dimensions, perhaps, because I'm not sure if culture would evolve the same across different, for example, institutions, or for Mm -hmm. example, if it occurs the same for ideas and tools and Mm -hmm. stuff like that
1: yeah that 's really interesting. i mean that's that 's one of the main reasons that Seshat was, was sort of founded in two thousand and fourteen was to you know compile as much evidence as we can precisely in order to answer questions about cultural evolution to sort of test these these theories out um, there's a really interesting question about you know does does a cultural system evolve differently than say you know a material technology like does religion and you know iron uh, tools evolve differently um, not not so much i would say uh less than than many people think i think that really what we are finding and we've done a lot of work you know both looking at sort of how cultural forms evolve but also how you know military technologies how sort of agricultural uh technologies and productivity evolves as well and what we find is that you know again there's there's differences in the sort of specific packages that different societies adopt but a lot of similarities in terms of, you know, the pressures, the sort of selective pressures from an evolutionary standpoint of what are driving all of these different things, and so a lot of it has to do with, you know, um, as cultural evolution theories would would expect, competition between groups, that sort of fierce rivalry, that really kind of existential threat, that you know, your neighbor, your your sort of, you know, you get into a war with your neighbors, or you're you're in this sort of competitive network. Um, and then it's sort of incumbent upon you to, to scale up, um, to, to you know, develop technologies that will allow you to produce more people, produce more things, produce scarier weapons, produce better defenses. And so this is why we see um, things like cavalry uh, and iron technology um, sort of develop in particular places where there's very high levels of intergroup conflict and then spread as that conflict spreads as well. So you get that kind of technological aspect. And of course, you know, iron is not only a military weapon, it's also an agricultural weapon. So that increases your population because you're, you're increasing your productivity, which then expands your, um, the scope of, of uh, competitive pressure because you're now a larger, scarier state. But at the same time, that same pressure, that same kind of intergroup competition that's driving this technological advances is also then advancing and driving the cultural systems, right? So again, we talk about these cultural systems, a lot of these institutions, a lot of these norms, what they seem to be doing is um, trying to promote and maintain cooperation at scale. And that cooperation is again, it's a selective, it's selective um, there's a selective pressure on it because the largest group that can cooperate the most tends to win in these uh, conflicts And so it's not just, you know, getting scarier, bigger, more um, batter weaponry and this sort of technology, but it's also the ability to develop these cultural systems that can allow these now growing larger populations to still cooperate against their neighbor, to cooperate in warfare, to cooperate in in whatever um, needs to happen uh, to maintain that social stability. So that's why you see, you know, this sort of intense competition. You tend to then see a rise in, in technologies, and then you tend to see as well, um, in similar reasons, the development of these kinds of moralizing religions or institutions that facilitate um, cooperation at scale. And so it's, it's very much you know, tied together as part of the same sort of patterns, which is really interesting to find.
0: Yeah, we'll come back to religion later in the interview, but I mean, are you also interested in understanding rates of innovation and Mm. the factors that play a role in them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and so um, we're currently involved in some work. I just led a paper that um, hopefully will be published soon about um, the development and sort of rates and the causes of military technology in particular and why and how that spreads throughout time. Um, we've, we've looked at agricultural technology. You know, rates of change is an interesting topic. It's, it's sort of, you know, it depends, a lot of it depends on what exactly you're measuring. Is it any particular technology that you can think of and sort of how quickly are these being either invented or adapted? Yes, that's an interesting question. To me, a slightly more interesting question is what are the key technologies um, so it's not just, you know, the number of, of new inventions that a particular society has. But what are the key ones that once somebody invents it once, it spreads everywhere, like everybody needs it. Um, you know, iron plows that improve agricultural productivity is one of these things, like it gets invented a couple different places across Eurasia, but then eventually spreads really everywhere around the world, like it seems to be one of the things you know in the pre-industrial uh, world that you just need to have in order to function. Cavalry warfare is another one of these things that seems to be, you know, once it, once it comes, it gives you such an advantage that everybody else either has to follow suit and invent it themselves or adapt it, um, or they just get trampled and then the society with it sort of takes over that territory. So one way or another, you know, eventually everybody sort of gets it. And and that to me is really the interesting, um, the interesting questions. Mm-hmm.
0: When it comes particularly to understanding the rise and fall of societies, mm-hmm. do we already know the factors that play a role there? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. different people present different explanations to why certain societies rise and fall. For example, even yeah, yeah. Jared an entire book Collapse on the reasons why certain societies across history have collapsed. So do you have any insights on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is still, you know, we don't have the final word on this, I would say, but this is very much uh, something we're, we're interested in. Um, and we are, you know, developing some insights, we're developing some some things. And it seems to be, you know, my perspective is that there, there's sort of two different camps of these sort of theories, as you've talked about. A lot of them are based on sort of external factors and how, you know, again, competition between states or sort of ecological conditions in that sort of diamond model um, drive states to sort of grow and then fall apart. On the other hand, you have a whole suite of theories that are about the internal conditions. So it's about, you know, is the society, you know, um, are the institutions sort of uh, inclusive? Are they uh, managing inequalities? Are they, um, is the economy sort of producing enough goods for people and distributing it? And that is sort of why states grow and fall apart. And both of them have a little bit to say. I mean, there's, there's decent evidence for both of them, but you know, what we try to do, and I think the, the beauty of our approach, is we say, okay, well, yeah, maybe all these different theories are telling a little bit of the story. How can we actually fit this together into a single kind of mechanistic framework that incorporates both the external pressures and the internal pressures? Um, this is something, you know, my colleague, Jim Bennett, is actually developing mechanistic models to try to combine these two forces and see how it works. And th- there seems to be a lot there. It's, it's, you know, on the one hand, as we talked about the external pressure that drives the um, development of technologies, the development of these institutions, these sort of growing scales, but then, you know, either that, you know, you're gonna face an enemy that just conquers you, they're just like that much superior to you, or you're gonna kind of get so big that your societal structures are kind of put to the test. You're facing a lot of pressure. There's just, you know, there's too many people fighting for a sort of inelastic supply of positions or resources. In, you know, impoverishment happens, um, elite overproduction happens. There's just literally too many people vying for prestige positions and they start fighting. And that, you know, can fracture a society that splits it apart. And so a lot of the declines in social complexity, a lot of these, you know, falls of great societies like Rome, like Han China, like, um, you know, the different Islamic caliphates, a lot of that can actually be pointed to sort of these internal structural demographic factors, as we call it.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, It's interesting that you reference the way that sometimes by uh, elite people start warring between them. That's one of the reasons why some societies collapse or at least, I mean, there, there starts being some internal problems there and then Uh, eventually the society collapses i guess Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, so because there are people and i think if i'm not mistaken that peter turkin is one of them that point toward the fact that uh, when revolutions occur for example they are fueled by this sort of dynamics that there are too many elite people and they Mm -hmm. start competing against one another and it's them who basically mobilize the rest of the population toward these kinds of revolutions and they are not something that happens uh, uh, from the bottom uh, the bottom up so, or something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a little bit of both. And so, you know, um, Jack Goldstone in particular really sort of um, developed this theory and Peter Turchin, as you say, Andre Korteyev, and some other people. Um, really took it, and this is, you know, my work with, with Peter Turchin right now is very much focused on exploring these uh, dynamics that you talk about and sort of the, the implications. And it's, it's a little bit of both. I mean, you know, to me, one of the, the sort of central forces that we seem to see is, you know, after a society kind of grows, it has this kind of expansion phase, it can only get so big, yet it still is producing people, right? Populations tends to grow, There are more people, um, you know, inequalities get reified and institutionalized. And what this happens is that kind of inequality is really the the kernel that drives a lot of it. And it happens on both ends of it. So it's not only that, you know, a larger number of people, the greater share of the population is becoming impoverished. um, You know, they don't have as many resources. They're kind of struggling to survive. And they are, you know, fomenting change and, and rightly so, right, they're not benefiting from the system. They're looking for change. They're sort of agitating. And there is a lot of bottom up momentum. There's a lot of bottom up um, revolutions. You can see, um, you know, revolts take place, rebellions take place that are entirely driven by the sort of impoverished um, uh, majority. But I think, you know, one of Goldstone's main insights was that, yeah, that can happen all the time, but it's not going to be a real overturn of the system. It's not gonna have a complete institutional or a systemic change if only um, it's, it's sort of the you know um, majority of the population who are involved, if the elites and the, those who have sort of wealth and power within society, if they remain um, united, if they remain um, dead set to maintain the system, there's really nothing you can do about it. So what happens is that eventually this inequality not only impoverishes the majority of the population, but as, as you're talking about and as we've, we've seen, you know, time and again, historically, and even today, um, those who sort of are compiling this wealth, those who are kind of benefiting from all this inequality, they're also experiencing this intense competition. Their numbers are growing. There's a larger number of people who, you know, are just below that, you know you know, you may be not the 1% wealthiest, you're the 2%, but you want to be in the 1% and you're, you're pissed off that you're not. And, and, you know, you agitate a lot of competition generally, um, with wealth, you want to translate that into prestige positions. You want to be a Senator, you want to be a leader whatever. And there's usually a finite number of those. And so the more people who sort of have the wealth and think they deserve one of these positions, the fiercer the competition gets, um, over who's going to actually hold these positions. And that is when you see the elite groups themselves start to splinter in faction. And once they're no longer united, then all of this sort of unrest and all of the sort of rebellious um, intentions of the sort of impoverished uh, majority population. Now, as you say, now they can be mobilized by the different elite factions. And that's really when you start to see civil war. Um, That's when you start to see real kind of collapse and splitting of societies. You know, sometimes it's, you know, uh, sometimes it's very violent, sometimes it's slightly less violent, sometimes it's, you know, what we would call positive institutional change, sometimes it's just a terrible, you know, disaster and huge loss of life. We're actually involved right now, I'm sort of leading a research project um, funded by the Rasmussen Foundation that's trying to exactly explore this, periods in history where societies have experienced this kinds of tension, these kinds of ruptures, trying to document, okay, what exactly happens? What are the factors that lead from, you know, the very violent, the very devastating outcomes, like a major bloody civil war, to the ones where, okay, yeah, there's, there's maybe some fighting, there's maybe some unrest, but the violence is minimal, and it really uh, is resolved more by peaceable institutional reform. How can you actually, what kind of lessons can you learn about um, what tips to scales either way? Um, and that's, that's really interesting work that we're, we're ongoing right now.
0: Mm-hmm. But when it comes to when societies get bigger and we have, for example, societies on the scale of empires, like we had the Roman Empire, the Macedonian Empire, the Mongol Empire and others. uh, I mean, uh, do we know anything more specific as to why those societies don't seem to last very long when they get that big i mean why do they start to fractionalize for example
1: yeah well i mean that's really one of the interesting things that we find is that you know it's the size of your society doesn't really seem to matter and that the mm-hmm. same exact processes that are you know driving the splintering of a giant empire like rome or like the um the various Khanates uh in and um you know uh, medieval central eurasia the same exact factors are also splintering, you know, um, small scale societies in Hawaii, pre-contact Hawaii, um, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, Indonesia in the uh, late antiquity. So it doesn't really matter how big your society it's not like empires are faced with, you know, they have slightly different challenges, but, but really the dynamics are very similar. And really what matters is, it, you know, however big you're going to get, there's going to be limits, right? even the largest continent only got so big for so long it doesn't really matter um you know what that what that size is once you reach your limit whether it's because of technology whether it's just because of the terrain or just because your um advance is thwarted by some other society whatever it happens to be eventually you're going to face these kinds of pressures eventually there's going to be competition from the outside that you know if you can't match it then you're doomed you're going to get conquered or there's going to be internal rebellion. And a lot of these large empires, like the Macedonian, Alexander's Macedonian Empire, like some of these Khanates, they were really a sort of thin veneer of imperial um, uh, sort of uniformity or imperial uh, control over what were sort of really intense regional conflicts between these sort of elite groups. And again, it's the same kind of dynamics. It's these elites who are you know, they want to be in charge, they want to institutionalize their own privileges, their own power. And so very quickly, um, we see that, you know, that kind of competition between these different regional rulers, these regional provincial governors, or whatever it happens to be, um, drives these wedges in these large societies. Same exact thing that happens even in the small scale societies. And and that's, you know, again, one of these really interesting commonalities is that it's not that different, um, no matter how whether you're a, a tiny, um, you know, uh, society of a few thousand people, or you're a giant uh, territory of, you know, thousands of kilometers of, of, uh, of territory. Uh, perhaps this
0: is too simplistic, but does it make sense that perhaps as societies grow larger, it's also harder to... Have control over. I mean, over all that's happening there. And I mean, for example, if you tr- if you're trying to have centralized government, then I mean, as societies grow larger and as they become empires, for example, uh, I mean, there are many things happening there that perhaps are harder and harder mm-hmm. to control. Does, does that make sense?
1: It totally makes sense. Um, and it's a really interesting point. There are, you know. Um, you think of sort of Joseph Tainter and the kind of imperial overshoot type theories. There's a lot of work that suggests um, that those are, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's simply if you get too big, you can't manage it. Um, that is, I mean, it's something we're, we're exploring. Again, my colleague Jim Bennett and I have been looking into this a lot, um, Peter Trichin as well. The, the That doesn't seem to be as supported empirically. Um, you know, there's, there's a few cases where you can kind of point to it looks like that's what's going on. But again, if you take a very large view, it it doesn't seem like that's the main driving factor. And and the reason I say that is because you don't actually see um, the the sort of longevity of societies doesn't seem to depend on their size or scale. Um, And so it's not that, you know, the larger you get, the more likely you are to collapse quicker. That's not the case. I mean, it seems like it might be, but it's actually not. Um, If you if you really sort of look at the durations, if you look at the size of different societies across the globe um, in different time periods. And again, what seems to be the answer is that, you know, one way or another, societies tend to solve these sort of problems. And um, it depends on the technology available and not just, you know, the material technology like um, communications technology or, um, uh, you know, economic uh, sort of institutions, but also you know, what I would call the cultural technology. And so as we've talked about, the kinds of governing institutions, the kinds of cultural systems that hold groups together, humans find solutions, right? You know, they find slightly different, as we talked about, you know, um, in, the, in the sort of uh, Bronze Age, you had societies that were, you know, a few thousand people, um, not that large territories, and they found particular solutions in the technology and the ruling systems and the cultural packages to keep that together. And yeah, at that time with those kinds of technologies, you couldn't support a larger um, scale empire. But eventually, again, through the kind of cultural evolutionary forces that we're talking about, those technological and and sort of cultural ruling packages, those evolve as well. And they keep evolving to match and to keep pace with um, the increasing scale that we see among societies. And so societies kept getting bigger, they got more people, now we get, Cities that have a million people, um, you know, Rome in in the early empire had a million people. That's a huge uh, sort of step in in the sort of evolution of scale. Then you see that happen in, um, you know, in places in Turkey, in places in China. You see large empires with 60, 70, 100 million people. And, you know, by the time that happens, the cultural packages that allow that um, society to kind of function and cohere also had evolved. And so you know, we do see societies that big. We do see empires that are that large. We today have societies that are a billion people that are able to maintain. So there's no you know, absolute thresholds of you know, how big can you get before you fall. A little bit has to do with your suite of technologies, your suite of um, sort of institutions and norms that hold it together. But you know, uh, there's, there's nothing about scale itself that uh, leads you to collapse. It's really, you know, what, how are you managing that scale? And, and humans seem to always find solutions to do that, no matter how big it gets.
0: Yeah, so just to put another hypothesis forward, could it have something to do with the fact that perhaps it's hard to try to have people from different cultures, in the case Mm. of empires, because we are conquering people from different places that probably have different customs and so on, to try to have them integrated within the same political unit and try to have them cooperate with one another. I mean, of course, that uh, would get us into issues surrounding multiculturalism and things like that, but uh, I mean, does that make sense?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean it's an it's an interesting hypothesis. Again, I would say that, you know, what matters is sort of the dynamics of it. There's no there's no simple single answer of oh yeah, you know, multicultural um, populations, diverse populations are more stable or less stable. Mm-hmm. They're both, and this is why you know this is why it, it is really important to have this sort of large scale dynamic viewpoint. Generally, what we see is that you know, again, we, this still requires more more research, but I'd say, you know, preliminarily exploring some of these uh, empirical evidence, some of these cases, while societies are expanding, whether it's the Roman Empire, which was very diverse and multicultural, whether it's the Islamic Caliphates, which were sort of known, especially the early medieval Caliphates, were kind of famous um, historically for being um, pluralistic, for being kind of open to diversity and managing it. While you're in that sort of, growth phase. And while while your institutions are holding, before you start to see these kind of structural demographic pressures, this kind of diversity of multiculturalism is often a boom, right? It, it really aids you it, it brings a diversity of voices, um, having different people with different um, cultural backgrounds, different um, sort of social and um, technological backgrounds helps you to adapt more quickly to whether it's a new technology or whether it's a new kind of, um, you know, religious system that is needed to keep everything running smoothly. That kind of diversity is actually, turns out to be super helpful and you sort of need it in these growing phases. However, Uh, Can I just interrupt you there for a second? Uh, And perhaps
0: having more people from different backgrounds can also aid uh, innovation.
1: Right. Exactly. And this is, you know, one of the one of the things that we see in, in, in a work exploring the evolution of technology is that, you know, the total number of people involved, just the number of potential inventors, seems to actually be one of the of the factors that is needed. You just need a lot of you need a large population in order to have enough brains working on problems to come up with solutions. You're absolutely right. And it's not just the number of people, but the 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 more, if, there, if everyone's all thinking the same, they're going to come up with the same solutions to the same problems. Right. You need diversity. I mean, evolutionarily, evolution doesn't happen without variation. You need diversity. You need people with different backgrounds and different experiences to come up with new solutions to, to present problems. You know, again, and, and what happens, what you see, and the reason that, you know, people can point to these um, Sort of, you know, the challenges of diversity and multiculturalism is that once the society gets to that sort of saturation point, once you start to see these demographic structural pressures happen, once there's impoverishment, once inequality has really been institutionalized, once these um, fractions start to happen, then unfortunately people can sort of refer back to different aspects of their identity. So, you know, I no longer think of myself as Roman. Um, while things are going bad, now I think of myself as as a Gaul or I think of myself as Spanish or I think of myself as Tunisian or whatever it happens to be, or I think of myself as, you know, Christian or Muslim, as opposed to um, having my identity, my, my central identity be the overarching um, political system. But that only really shows up when things are already going bad structurally. But then when that happens, then it's, it's you know, you have these kind of standing animosities, these standing... Um, Intergroup conflicts that are kind of ready to to bubble up and to ready to um, propel societies into these kind of bloody civil wars that we've been talking about. And so that's, you know, That's the challenge that happens. And that's, that's, a, you know, the challenge that a lot of, of countries today are facing exactly these same sort of uh, pressures. Mm-hmm. yeah i'm trying
0: to leave politics aside here but you know because nowadays with the rise of the extreme right particularly we hear all the time this sort of political narrative that more homogeneous societies are more cohesive and yeah. they last longer and things like that so i mean it's not particularly a scientific statement of course but uh, just to address it anyway. yeah yeah, yeah.
1: yeah i mean it's 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 not a scientific statement, and it's empirically false. Um, so that's, you know, again, I, I agree. I don't want to get sort of political, but you know, there's, there's, that's not that kind of simple of a solution. is, is just empirically not true. Um, but you know, again, it's it's important not to overlook that, yeah, you know, diversity and having having multiple different types of identity systems um, and and sort of focus the uh, loci of identity within a particular society is both a advantage and a challenge. And I think that's why it's so tough, and that's why you have somewhat compelling arguments on both sides is because there are some things you can point to and that really the, the issue is, you know, to me, the question is always, okay, it's both. It's, it's an advantage and it's a challenge. How can we develop systems? How can we sort of develop um, communication strategies that maximize the advantages and minimize the challenges. It's not, you know, one or the other. It's it's trying to get that sort of um, unbalanced uh, uh, system, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm.
0: And we will come back to this point later in the interview. Yeah. But let me now ask you about religion specifically Mm. because i mean religion is one of those big topics in history and different people have different ideas about it and if you listen to the new atheists they look back in history and say that religion was simply a pernicious phenomenon and still is in society but Mm. then again uh, i've been talking for example on the show with cognitive scientists of religion Mm. and they point toward many different societal and individual benefits religion brings so what would be your take on it
1: well i mean this is (laughs) again (laughs) these tough you know you're putting me on the on the test here um you know i I do work with a lot you know you've had really excellent interviews with a lot of these cognitive um psychologists and sort of cognitive evolutionary um scholars and again you know i i work with a lot of them i'm definitely on that side and you know, to me, I mean, first of all, the, the academic question, the scholarly question isn't, you know, is, is religion good or bad? It's why does it arise? And why is it um, what we call the cultural universal? Like, there's really no society historically that you can point to that has no religion or ritual system at all. Like, this, is, this seems to be something that is necessary for societies of any kind of scale to function. And so, you know, from a cultural evolution standpoint, the question really is why, and this is why um, you point to the advantages, um, and this is where you know people like Harvey Whitehouse, Quentin Atkinson, um, David Sloan Wilson, sort of others that that you've talked to, um, you know, really point out some really um, compelling arguments about, you know, again that that sort of evolutionary framework of you need something, humans need something to. Um, A sort of of key, a kind of cornerstone that we can identify with, that we can identify others as being one of us, as being part of that in-group, that seems to be essential to solving collective action problems, which are, you know, one of the main things that that face humans as a species. Um, And religion just happens to be really good at uh, establishing that kind of group identity and therefore solving collective action problems. So, I mean, that's the best explanation for why it happens and why religions persist. And then you can, you know, get into the details of different kinds of religions and why they develop at different types of scale. And this is some of the work that we do. On the other hand, again, you know, just because there is an advantage, just because there's a clear evolutionary um, incentive to have these types of systems, doesn't mean that they don't come with um, some nasty side effects. And, you know, as we talked about, some of the nasty side effects are you know, collective action and cooperation are great. You know, societies need to cooperate. The problem is that cooperation is often against others. And so, you know, yeah, your in-group is doing great. You know, you're, you're all working together. But if that, if that cooperation is harnessed to work together in order to kill some other group, that's not so great. And, you know, as good as religion is at fomenting that cooperation, it's equally good at... Um, reifying and um, sort of highlighting the differences between different identity groups. And that can lead to these sorts of conflicts. Evolutionarily that is very useful, but you know, again, if that's something you're trying to minimize, then that becomes a a challenge. And really the question is, you know, as we talked about, how can you maximize the good? How can you get, you know, the the positive benefits of these kinds of cultural systems in terms of establishing identity uh, in terms of solving collective action problems, while minimizing that kind of intergroup conflict. And there are advantages, you know, um, Sergey Gavrilich is another colleague of mine and others, uh, Peter Peregrine have have looked about, um, you know, natural sort of ecological conflicts, like ecological Mm -hmm. disasters can be a much more healthy source of competition. So in other words, instead of, you know, human groups cooperating in order to conquer or in order to fight another human group. They cooperate in order to over, overcome some ecological disaster, whether it's a volcanic eruption or a drought or a famine or a pandemic, um, but that has an, a, a similar kind of force of bringing people together without the sort of violence of against other humans on the other end. And so, you know, again, more work needs to be done on this, but to me, that's, uh, a you know, uh, kind of promising avenue for harnessing the good of, of religions and these kind of cultural systems while mi- minimizing or mitigating some of the bad that comes with it.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you frame the questions in terms of why do religions have these positive and negative aspects and how do they work and so on because I mean I wanted to ask you so this work you're doing with Shechet and your collaborators it's not prescriptive in any way I mean if we get to know how societies work and the sorts of forces that operate on them and that lead them in a, in a direction or another I mean you're not saying that that's particularly Absolutely good or bad, right?
1: Yeah, I think that that's extremely well put. We we really try to be to avoid being prescriptive, to avoid um, you know favoring any particular theory or any particular viewpoint. You know, really the, the point of this and why we brought uh, sort of work on it is to bring together as much empirical evidence as possible in order to test theories. And you know, we want to bring the scientific method to bear on historical questions. I mean, this is really what we call the cleodynamics approach. Which is kind of the the methodological um, driver of what we do and you know that's you're exactly right you know we want to gather all of the different theories that have been proposed they're all up for grabs you know they all tend to have something uh speaking for them they have something that you know seems appealing about these theories but they can't all be right or they can't at least all be entirely right and so this is what we try to do you know we, we are neutral we don't have a favorite okay this theory makes this prediction this other theory makes that prediction let's look at the historical record let's look at the empirical data and you know this is why it's important to have this kind of quantitative um approach as well to say okay well let's actually count things up let's measure it which one is more right or is it a third option that actually explains all the data better and you know not prescriptive really just as you say descriptive of how can we explain the patterns that we in fact have observed Mm
0: -hmm. So in the book, uh, just to talk about, uh, just to be more specific now, in the book you present many different numbers and for Mm. example regarding uh, standing armies monuments collective rituals so by looking at these numbers can we say something in terms of the social dynamics that we find in a particular society so for example if we have a bigger army does that by itself tell us anything about how the society is organized for example
1: Mm. Uh, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, the, the book, the figuring out the past is, you know, again, it's not so academic. It's really for, um, general audience. It's really just to, um, you know, one of the main reasons we wrote it was just to show that there's so much diversity. There's so much similarity. There's so much interesting things happening in places of the world in different societies that most people haven't heard of. Um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, the highlands of Papua New Guinea, or whether it's sort of Northern Colombia, whether it's, you know, um, the the Niger River Delta in um, in Mali, whatever it happens to be, just sort of collecting this sort of information. On the other hand, you know, you, you raise an interesting point, and I would say it's not so much that, you know, you can go from, you know, the size of the standing armies or, you know, how large your monument was. You're not gonna have, just from those numbers alone, a perfect sense of, what the society was like, but once you start adding up these numbers, once you start um, counting the different aspects, these different sort of statistics, um, when you have the framework, then it, it is very uh, re- it is revealing of, of what the society is like you know and again we talk about you know the challenges that all these societies face and how they are adapting different technologies, different cultural systems in order to meet these challenges of intergroup competition or whatever it happens to be. This is why you actually see these numbers change and the numbers are very diagnostic of the solutions to these challenges. Armies tend to grow as you are facing this, um, you know, as you're scaling up, as you're growing in order to face the particularly intense competitions. But they also then fall, right? And that's one of the interesting things that, you know, we, we want to highlight and one of the things that the book tries to do. I think a lot of people sort of generally have the sense that, you know, things in history just always get bigger and better. Um, You know, oh, they start really small and sort of uh, undeveloped or um, primitive and then they sort of get more advanced over time. Maybe in a very general sense, that's kind of true, but it's not as true as people think. And and things tend to be non-monotonic. There's really important drops. There's important differences in, in the dynamics. And so, yeah, standing armies tend to grow with competition but they don't only grow, they also go down. As a society wins out, as these large empires basically conquer the competitive field, they don't need as large standing armies anymore. You actually see competition, you see conflict um, minimize. Again, as societies are growing, they are starting to institutionalize hierarchies, institutionalize status differentials, and those lead to bigger and better and more impressive monuments, and so yeah, looking at you know the size of pyramids the size of palaces in northern china or the 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 lack of palaces in western africa is you know not it's not going to give you the entire picture but it is definitely diagnostic of part of the story of you know how that society was evolving um, in that particular in particular time Mm -hmm.
0: but it's by looking at all of those numbers together right because and that's the perhaps the reason why for different societies different empires and so on you present numbers from many different kinds of sources and institutions and cultural tools and so on
1: exactly yeah that's you know as we talked about it's it's you know these different things, the the material technology, the cultural institutions, the norms are not actually that different. They're all responding to the same underlying dynamics. And and you're absolutely right, looking at the numbers all together, as long as you have a kind of framework for understanding, you know, the evolution of societal structures, um, and those sorts of dynamics, then yeah, you can you can sort of see how um, the numbers together, you know, are, are, epiphenomenal or um uh, revelatory of of what's going on underneath Mm
0: -hmm. and uh, so to talk about specifically cultural tools like for example in the book you mention bureaucracy law codes Mm. calendars uh, do they tell us anything about the kinds of tools that societies need when they start getting larger scale to function properly and to be able to grow more and to get more complex? I mean, is there, for example, mm-hmm. a minimum set of tools mm-hmm. that they need?
1: Hmm, that's really interesting. <laughs> you know, we kind of, you know, again, I, I don't like need, it's not like an absolute requirement, but, um, you know, our in, in our work and, and sort of some of our um, recent publications, we've shown that yeah, there are very, very strong common patterns. and it's you know it's not a, a minimum. And again, it's not a single minimum threshold or a single package okay. that you need. But as as societies scale up as they evolve, then yes, it, it, there's more and more pressure. It becomes more and more likely that they're going to adapt different governing systems, different information um, exchange systems, which is what calendars are, which is what sort of writing um, writing systems are, really an information exchange system. Yeah, you, know, you can get pretty large, pretty complex societies without writing, without those kinds of information packages, but we've never seen any that are really, really large without it, right? It does seem to be at, at some thresholds eventually, yeah, you do need a way to translate information that's not just verbal mm-hmm. and, and, right. and other sort of things, yeah.
0: Yeah, so uh, a more general question now. I've already asked you about human universals. Uh, with these data, can we, because of the similarities we find across societies, can we tell anything about human nature? And I mm-hmm. mean, <laughs> do you understand the kind of question I'm trying to ask you?
1: I do. I mean, it's 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 a it's a very tough question. I do understand it. it's it's a good question. You know, yeah. Again human nature, it's a term I would sort of shy away from just because it is very loaded, Um, and it it implies a lack of diversity, and again, you know, as we talked about earlier, to me, you can understand commonalities. You can understand, yes, there are common challenges that all human societies face. There's a limited set of answers to those challenges, And, and so that looks like something like universal that looks like a sort of law of human societies that we need to respond to these challenges in particular ways, and there is something to that. But at the same time, that doesn't preclude the fact that, you know, the specific manifestations of how these um, challenges, how these religions, how these governing institutions are put together, allows for a huge range of diversity. And so human societies at the same time are all exactly the same, and each entirely different and that's that's tricky and that's a little bit of an unfair answer but you know honestly that is i do think that it is both both of those things happen at the same time and that's conceptually how we sort of need to reframe our thinking around this
0: Mm -hmm. so i have a couple final questions just before we go Mm -hmm. Um, we've been talking about mostly historical events but with your data Mm -hmm. can it help us understand contemporary events
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the million dollar question. And as I talked about, you know, um, the project that I'm currently sort of leading and and, um, focused on is exactly this, is trying to, you know, catalog cases from history about, you know, what happens, what what are the pressures that societies face, how do they respond to them, whether it's, you know, responding poorly and leading to collapse, or how do they respond well, and, you know, not, you know the the first goal is just to understand what happened in the past, but as you say, the the sort of longer term goal and the subsidiary uh, idea here is that we can learn lessons. Understanding what happened in societies that are facing particular challenges can help us understand how we are responding and why we are societies today are responding to very similar sort of challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know this can also maybe give hints to what's going to happen down the road or how can we how can we you know maybe shift shift the scales of of what happens
0: mm-hmm. yeah and that was the other question i was going to ask you can we make any predictions yeah. about the future
1: yeah yeah i knew you were you were getting to this um and this is you know again it's really really an important question and a lot of historians shy away from it and it is very fraught you know um academia doesn't have a great history with being prescriptive about kind of societal things um you know, which again, we, we we'd want to be very wary of that. Um, however, I don't, and, and you know, my colleagues and I don't shy away from this. And I would say that prediction is not something we do. Prediction implies a level of certainty or a level of specificity that we don't have. We talk about it more in terms of forecasting and, and we liken this to kind of weather forecasting, right? really what you know um, what meteorologists look at is they look at you know atmospheric pressures and how these pressures build up and they say okay as these pressures are building it becomes more and more likely that there's going to be a storm um, you know you can't say the exact time you can't say the exact you know um, block in the city where it's going to happen you don't know exactly how long the storm's going to last but you can say okay chances are getting increasingly likely that if you go outside you're going to need an umbrella that's more like what we do, right? We can, you know, understanding these dynamics, understanding these structures and how they've played out in history, we've proven um, and sort of Peter Turchin has done a lot of work sort of showing that this can also allow us to track how these pressures are building up in contemporary societies and allow us not to predict, but to forecast. You know, we don't know exactly what day there's gonna be an armed revolt. We don't exactly, you know, who's gonna be the leader of of a sort of rebellious movement but we can track. Okay, pressures are building. It's becoming increasingly likely that there's going to be some kind of societal storm, as we would put it. There's, you know, you're going to need an umbrella. Um, and one of the long-term goals of, of my sort of uh, Foundation-funded uh, project is to be able to, to, you know, understand the factors that lead, you know, when these pressures build up, what determines? Okay, they they keep building until they um, you know, release in this major catastrophic, bloody, violent civil war, or what you know actually allows these pressures to dissipate with relatively little violence, with actually positive reform that actually increases the well-being of people um, down the road. What can we learn from history that can allow us to maybe come up with some ideas of how we can tip the scales of modern societies that are facing these pressures to help move them away from sort of the, the catastrophic outcomes towards the more Um, beneficial ones. And again, not being overly prescriptive, but not shying away from the fact that history does provide us um, some lessons um, in this. And the other thing that I would say is, is, you know, when we talk about forecasting, one of the the other ways that it's different from prediction is we want to be wrong. Like the entire point of doing these forecasts is to say, you know, there's trouble ahead. This is a warning sign. Pressures are building. A storm is brewing. The whole point of highlighting that and, and bringing that out in, into the open is so that people can change course and so that people can um, intervene so that the forecasted trouble doesn't actually happen. And so, you know, we want more than anything to be wrong. Um, and that's really, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the, I think, goals and one of the important roles that historians can play is, is uncovering these patterns, uncovering these lessons that can help us avoid some of our um, past mistakes.
0: Mm-hmm. So even if it isn't overly prescriptive, prescriptive, I mean the kind of approach you have here, it can can be uh, can be perhaps in the future utilized by people to try to bring about better, more prosperous societies, and perhaps have some sort of uh, be put to political ends.
1: Yeah, and this is you know again, it's not. It's not for people like me. It's not for academics or historians to say, oh, you know, here's exactly the law you need to put in place or here's the, the um, response. But, you know, again, we talk about some of these internal pressures. We talk about elite overproduction, for example, as one of these driving forces we can identify in many parts of the world, in the U.S., in and, and the U.K., in Canada, where I'm based today, these forces are clearly happening. Um, and so, yeah, we're not going to say, you know, here's exactly the law that you need to resolve this, but we can point out that, you know, wealth inequality is one of these major things, having fairly closed um, sort of prestige political offices is one of these factors that intensifies this kind of competition. So that suggests to policymakers, you know, different kinds of reforms that can have a more equitable redistribution of wealth within a society or, um, you know, tweaks to the political system that allows uh, sort of de-escalates the competition for the, the top political um, prestige positions. Things like that are absolutely available. And, you know, we, we have started to, we want to do more of interaction and conversations with real policymakers and really narrow that divide between sort of the academic world and the, um, you know, policy, putting things into practice sort of world, which is, you know, again, dangerous. It's fraught, but, you know, I don't think... I don't think it's safe to to shy away from it completely. You know, we need need these lessons um, that history can offer.
0: Yeah, right. Okay, so uh, the book is, again, figuring out the past, that 3,495 vital statistics to explain world history. Uh, Where can people find your work on the internet?
1: They can find it everywhere. You can go to Amazon. You can go to um, profile publishers. You can go to um, Hachette uh, Press to find this work. You can look up sort of me, my name, Daniel Hoyer. Um, You can look at peterturchin.com. Go to the databank.info, which is where you can find everything you need to know about our project and our work. So, Uh,
0: by the way, are you thinking about writing a more academic book in the future by, uh, I mean, trying to explain how we should think about or how to make sense of these statistics?
1: Yeah. um, So we, we have actually a few, you know, academic books but also aimed at a kind of a more general audience actually in the works that are exactly trying to bring together a lot of the strands that we were talking about today um so this is you know a couple of years down the road but this is definitely this is definitely coming so that's a good well, question
0: yeah okay so and i hope to have you on the show again oh, for when sure. those for books sure. are out and thank you for taking the time to come on the show it's been that's, a real pleasure to talk to you yeah
1: great conversation thanks so much for having me uh,
0: Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. So it is thanks to people like you that the show has been running for such a long time, more than three years now, and I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you prefer PayPal, you can also find links to it in the description box of the interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, hit the subscription button, and comment on it. This show is brought to you by NLights, the learning and development done differently. Check their website at nlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters: Karen Litska, and Blanchet Perga, Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, and Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle. Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whiting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollis, Henrik Allenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron. Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Muller, Herbert Guinties, Rutger Bosbo, Weingart, Becker, Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Nácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Life, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Eugni, Alexander Denbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Yevan Bodrenko, Ala Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslan Bulut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T., Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., Joan Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Ades Araujo, Eden Roman Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londoño Correa, Tom Roffia, Nick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Blizz, Mirren B., Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasebski, Max Belby, Nelek Back, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Allman, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis France, and Nero Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rogieschi, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.